So let's continue in our circling motion, our circling movement between the different elements and facets of this whole area that we're trying to open up of eros and soul making. And uh, continue our weave back and forth, um, revisiting certain um, of those elements and weaving them together with others back and forth like a loom. And so I mentioned uh, that I would like to um, say more about the whole aspect of conceptual framework and uh, draw that in and and draw that out uh, more. Um, so that I hope I hope it's obvious. Um, it should be obvious. I think that any any path that we uh, <coughs> wish to walk down spiritual path, psycho-spiritual path, whatever, um, and any set of practices that form part of that path, that path and those practices need some kind of undergirding in a conceptual framework, a logos that holds them together, that puts them in relationship to other, <coughs> to each other, makes sense um, of them, gives them direction, all that. Uh, so they go together, they are kind of indispensable to uh, a conceptual framework, is indispensable to a path. <clears throat> and as such it forms, um, in a way it forms a map, or part of a map you could say, of, of what that path, where that path is trying to go, if we use that image. Um, it helps in the navigation, that's what we were talking about before, navigation. What, what is the art of navigation with all these practices? The conceptual framework is very much a part of that at a lot of different levels. You know, <clears throat> One level is a kind of macro level, the other level is a kind of moment-to-moment. Um, the conceptual framework, um, the, our understanding of that, informs our moment-to-moment decisions and responses in practice. Practice, we are in life, we are constantly um, meeting, encountering a new, a new situation, a new moment with a new experience, or this or that coming to the fore. And the question is, how should I respond? Um, how should I navigate in relation to what is coming up, in relation to where I want to go? Um, all of that is informed by the larger conceptual framework. Uh, conceptual framework, logos, also makes sense. Uh, it, we, we need something to make sense, or part of us needs something to make sense, and um, it, of our experiences, of, of the whole notion of the path, of our life, it, all of that. The conceptual framework is part of that. It uh, offers that, it um, contributes to that. <clears throat> Actually, there's a whole other level in which it, it makes sense in a, in the different meaning of the word. It makes sense. Um, uh, in other words, it makes experience. We'll come back to that. But it forms for us a vessel. If we go back to that alchemical <coughs> metaphor that we were ma- maxim that we were drawing on, it the conceptual framework forms a vessel, forms a structure that contains. Uh, we feel contained by, supported by, so that we can trust um, our movement on the path. Are we going in the right direction? We trust our experiences as they unfold, or we know what to trust. So in that sense, it gives us it gives us a sense of stability, support and stability, and that's part of balance, isn't it? So we're talking about navigating and finding balance with Eros, with the imaginal, etc. So conceptual framework, Logos, is part of what grounds us. It's a head thing, you know, we say it's a head thing, but actually it grounds us. It gives us a foundation, it gives us a kind of scaffolding. Now, especially if we're encountering intense experiences, but even if they're not intense, if if we're just feeling ourselves move into um, what might be new territory or edgy territory, if it's our edge, or if it's regarded by the mainstream of society, or whatever culture we're moving in, Dharma culture, other, other you know, more, um, more larger culture, as um, regarded as, um, uh, you know, uh, edgy, or 
um, dangerous or um, ridiculous or whatever it is. So really, really supportive there um, in all of that. Uh, grounding, foundation, scaffold, support, vessel, all of that. And, you know, eros and the imaginal and soul-making, um, for a lot of people, is edgy or is regarded as edgy and, and all that other stuff. <clears throat> so in a way, you know, we could, uh, to give a sort of... Um, image, metaphor, um, for a conceptual framework. It's kind of like a trellis uh, in, in, in a garden. Uh, you know, a, a sort of wooden scaffolding, if you like, or it could be made of something else, but that forms a, forms a support for, for a certain flower, maybe roses or something, to grow. And they grow along or up and, and wind their way along this trellis. Um, and then they can flower and they can have their beauty and their beauty can be seen and we can receive that. And the structure, the trellis, is providing a structure that's supportive and for the sake of all the beauty that that, that, that flowers there. So oftentimes we don't, we don't really, you know, sometimes we want, we, we dismiss or we want to get away from conceptual frames that we don't realize actually how how supportive it is. Actually, a better analogy, even in the trellis, would be um, for the roses in a rose garden or something, would be um, <coughs> a tree, uh, perhaps a fruit tree. Uh, the tree is its own structure. The roots, the trunk, the branches, uh, all of that... Uh, the, the shape of that, we could say that um, that it, the conceptual framework is like the structure of a tree. You understand? It forms a structure. What's perhaps better about the tree analogy is that um, it's not like the structure is one thing and the soul-making is another thing, as it was in, in the trellis analogy to the r- roses. Um, here, the structure, the conceptual structure... Is this is a part of soul? It's an aspect of the tree. It's it's totally integrated with the tree. The trunk, the roots, the um, branches, the structure, the shape of that um, is the tree. It's part of the tree. It's it's completely embodied, incorporated. They're not separate things. So <clears throat> logos and conceptual framework is part, a dimension, an aspect of soul and soul making and psyche. So even though we say eros, psyche, logos, remember I said they're not really separate. Okay, so that might be a useful analogy. And then we have the fruit and the beauty and the flowers of the tree and and all of the that a tree can offer, um, or even a whole orchard of trees. But uh, the tree is uh, the structure of the tree is 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 the tree, and and also in the tree analogy or. or uh, the fruit tree analogy, it's not a fixed structure. So the structure of that tree is organic. It grows, just as our conceptual framework can, and as I've been saying, needs to grow. The logos needs to grow. So just like a tree, it's not a fixed, limited, preset, rigid structure. It is actually organic, and it grows. And that growing uh, of the tree and of the conceptual frameworks are responsive. In other words, they respond. If you look at the way, um, a, 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 let's say, an apple tree grows in an orchard, um, you'll see how responsive it is to the way the light, uh, as plants are uh, phototropic um, t- to different degrees, uh, it responds to the light, it responds to the other trees around it, it responds to all kinds of things. It responds also to itself when it's getting too heavy or too lopsided, etc. Sometimes that response, if you like, is it actually breaks. A branch breaks off or the tree splits in two, a crack appears and then uh, sometimes the tree gets too big for itself and conceptual frameworks also can break, get too big, a crack appears, etc. Can we include that fact, that organic fact of the way trees uh, grow as organic and and organic fact about conceptuality and conceptual frameworks. Can we include that in a sort of larger scale conceptual framework? 
So right there, there's this Kabbalistic idea, uh, mythical idea of the breaking of the vessels, Shivirat HaKelim, and one kind of vessel, as I said, is a conceptual framework. And those two, in our life, they break <coughs> at times. And uh, though that can be very difficult, and I'll come back to this, I would also say, sad the person whose conceptual framework doesn't break at least once in their life. I'll come back to that. But here we have perhaps an analogy where uh, the the structure is not separate from the fruit, from the soul-making, from what the soul is. Um, it's not fixed. It's organic. It grows. It, it That's part of its nature. And it grows in a responsive um way with what's around it. And the breaking might be part of it. Now I've also said, and uh, it's, it's one of the things that's really worth repeating, is when I when I say concept or logos or conceptual framework or, or even idea, um, I, I'm not just referring to something abstract, some sort of, something removed, taken fro- away from life, away from experience, away from uh, embodiment into some kind of disembodied intellectual separate sort of realm of, of the mind. I'm not, you know, there can be that. We can have conceptual frameworks. That's, that's what we're doing with them and that's what they become for us. And, and okay, we can include that, but mostly I'm I'm really talking about um, uh, what we live, an, an indispensable element of our existence that comes into our life that we actually end up embodying, whether we know it or like it or or not, um, comes into our experience. Mostly, I'm not even talking about um, what we think. So certainly, a conceptual framework we. You know, elucidate it and elaborate on it in words and thought, and we reflect on it and put it together with other ideas and make sure we understand all that thinking. And of course, I'm, I'm including that, but I'm also making the point I've made before that um, concept logos, as I would use uh, that word, operates even when we are not thinking. Even in the second jhana uh, and, and other jhanas and those kinds of experience, there is not um, thinking going on, but there is conceptuality going on. If we don't see that, if you don't see that, and I know some people are really wedded to the idea of non-conceptual awareness in different ways. For some people it means bare attention, for other people it means it's kind of got a Dzogchen context or whatever. Um, but if you don't see that, um, then uh, what I, I would unfortunately or fortunately say to you is it just needs more practice. You need to practice um, with uh, more subtlety of uh, sensitivity and noticing, but particularly to practice in the direction of less fabrication. So much so that you begin to see the relationship with um, con- concepts conceptualities in the present moment, in the mind, how they not just shape uh, the fabrication, therefore the experience, but actually how they contribute, how they actually fabricate anything at all. In other words, without conception, if you really drop all conception, nothing gets fabricated, no experience gets fabricated. So that where there's conception, it fabricates experience, and where there's experience, there's some conception bound up, wrapped up in that experience. So even the barest uh, level of conceptuality, some kind of knowing, um, with some some kind of knower and known, therefore subject and object, some kind of the barest, barest, most refined level, and some kind of sense of a present moment, that's conceptuality. Subject, object, and time is the barest level of conceptuality, and and pulled almost immediately in with all that is a whole bunch of other stuff about potentiality and change and therefore past and future and, and all of that. Um, but even that, now I don't have any label for what, what is appearing as object and what is known. Uh, it could be a very subtle perception, but where there is perception, experience, appearance, there is concept. 
And certainly at the level of mindfulness, or so-called bare attention, you know, you just need to play with, um, is there a subtle concept, this is now a less subtle level of conceptuality, but is there a relatively subtle concept I'm not even conscious of, this is what I'm mindful of, um, but, for example, um, I'm... Am I regarding it as something real? Am I regarding it even as something material? Whatever it is, this tree that I'm looking at, this um, touch of the foot on the on the on the earth, and what's wrapped up in that concept of materiality, or am I regarding it as an appearance, which is a more, if you know the philosophical term, more of a phenomenological bracketing there? It's appearance. That's already regarding it as appearance. A mindfulness that regards this touch of the foot as appearance is is different already than a mindfulness that unconsciously, automatically, out of habit, regards regards that touch as the meeting of materials, the foot and the earth. Anyway, there's always a conceptual framework. There's always a logos. There's always a way of looking when there's any experience, apart from the un- experience, the un- so-called experience of the unfabricated. It's a very different kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> uh, where there is no time, no, no knowing of subject or object. Uh, knowing subject or, or knowing object. Knowing of object. Um, there's always conceptual... Uh, framework, there's always a concept, a logos which Im- which creates a way of looking which is part of the way of looking which, if you like, is part of determining the experience not just the interpretation, the hermeneutics of this experience but the experience itself is part of fabricating <coughs> so when we talk, when I'm talking now about conceptual framework and logos or idea and um, I probably use those words interchangeably, um, I'm talking about something that um, uh, we want it to, to uh, be translatable, incorporatable into a way of looking, <coughs> so that it's fruitful, so that it's fertile, so that it opens up um, our perception. We're talking, and our experience, we're talking about something that we live. Yeah? There's always, as I will come back to, I've said before in other talks, and I'll come back to, there's always a metaphysics. There's always some belief about what's real, and there's always some conceptuality there. And we we actually want that to come, we want to be able to employ different conceptual frameworks that are actually fertile, that give rise to uh, open up our experience, and that we can actually embody in our life. Now, for me, I would say, and you'll have to see how much you feel the same way, but for me, I would say, if we're interested in building a conceptual framework, opening one up, discovering, creating a conceptual framework in uh, in, 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 in the Dharma and, um, and in relation to Eros and soul-making, then it's going to need to be able to do quite a lot or support quite a lot, the way I see it right now. It's going to need to account for uh, quite a few things, quite a few aspects of experience, and uh, it's going to have to include and not ignore quite a few things. I'll I'll give a list of things. Um, It's going to need to make sense of quite a few things um, in our experience, etc. It's going to need to give a vital place to and a purpose to quite a few things and also connect those things. So it needs to account for, include and not ignore, make sense of, give vital place and purpose to, and connect quite a few different (coughs) um, elements of our experience. One is this whole uh, observation that we have of um, lessening fabrication. And that whole spectrum of fabrication that we can discover in meditation, it's not random. It's not just things disappear because they're impermanent. We actually see there's a whole spectrum, more or less fabricated, all the way down to no fabrication at all. No experience. 
dependent, we, we need to understand the dependent origination there and what that's dependent of and conceptuality and um, identification and avidya clinging we talked about this all before but that fact it's not somehow I need to account for it and include it I can't just kind of skip over that and coming out of that um, observable spectrum of fabrication its relationship with uh, or its dependent arising um, either coming out of that or some other way the emptiness of all things all things without question not the aggregates, uh, or rather, not not leaving anything not empty, not leaving the aggregates, the process, the time, the big awareness, being, materiality, atoms, electrons, subatomic particles, emptiness of all, 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 space, time, and all of that. Somehow, this to me has to be included. If we don't, then uh, something remains not empty and we start building a whole structure on that assumption of reality which uh, is relatively easily disproved in one way or another. And of course, that's what sometimes happens, uh, either consciously... Or pe- the person doesn't even realise that I'm that they're assuming the reality of this or that, assuming the non-emptiness of this or that, and they're just saying yes, 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 emptiness, of course. But there's some basis in reality there, and everything is coming out of that as a foundation of this real thing, whatever it is, materiality. And then you've got a neuroscience-based dharma, or uh, you know, atomistic process, or whatever it is. So fabrication, the spectrum of fabrication, dependent arising, the emptiness of absolutely everything. And that also for me, the whole the whole opening up of the idea of ways of looking, the plurality, the legitimacy of, 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 of a whole m- m- manifold uh, range of ways of looking. Not because um, we want to be nice guys. I don't, I don't actually think I'm a nice guy. <laughs> That's not the reason that uh, I'm just trying to be, you know, not get into an argument with someone. So I just say everyone's way of looking is fine. That's actually not what I'm saying, and that's not the reason. It's coming out of emptiness. It's it's going deeply into fabrication, very deeply. And uh, seeing the emptiness of all things, seeing what we left with, we are left with a range, an option of, of, of ways of looking. The diversity, the flexibility of ways of looking. <clears throat> and somehow, in all that, um, I also need to um, account for, make sense of, uh, and give purpose to the whole, uh, and really structure the whole relationship of the fabricated with the unfabricated. And then where does this thing that people call mindfulness or bare attention fit into that? So this we've talked about before. But somehow my conceptual frame has to, has to, as I said, account for and include all this. I can't just ignore that spectrum of fabrication. I can't, um, it, you know, forget that everything is empty. Yes. So all of that... But then also, uh, again, in what, in what the conceptual framework that to me w- would really be uh, you know, healthy and relatively robust and, and beauty-making and supportive and all that, needs also to account for, include, make sense of, give vital place and purpose to, and connect all, all these with, with, um, with the other ideas. So also, images and the imaginal, and what does that mean? Are we just going to discount the whole imaginative faculty? Of hu- that human beings have um, the noticing of the fact that our life is full of uh, fantasy anyway um, the whole uh, movement of soul making and again are we just going to ignore it and pretend that that's not uh, something that is part of our existence to, to more or less degrees for different human beings at different times it already exists all this are we going to dismiss it are we g- going to ignore it or actually are we going to construct and discover a 
conceptual framework that can, but you know, hold all this together and give it life. Uh, and again, you know, part of that, of course, is and what we're talking about eros and desire and sexuality. Again, are we just sort of chopping that stuff off, or over simplistically reducing it, or dismissing it, or labeling it in too uh, reductive or not uh, subtle enough ways? And body, body, you know, are we limiting what body is to us and can be to us? We just have a sort of materialist, reductionist view of body or uh, just see it through the lens of sort of um, the the way we've been taught the four foundations of mindfulness as the first foundation or something. Body how much that has been left out of uh, until quite recently um, and even then it's only just hardly made any inroads but how much that has been left out of western philosophy and psychology embodiment and what the body is and what the body can be for us, to us where there is soul making, where there is expansion of Eurosychologos the body too will be drawn into that I'll come back to this So somehow a conceptual framework has to actually include body uh, and give more place to body, more purpose to body, different accounts of body. And then, of course, also just the whole of the human being. And again, what is our conceptual framework saying about what a human being is? Because that, too, with soul-making, will be um, expanded, broadened, deepened, given dimension. Am I just sticking it into, again, a kind of evolutionary accident emerging from the primal swamp after long enough time by the vagaries of biochemistry? Or the human being is just what secular modernism says the human being is? Uh, and and related to that, of course, relationships. What are human relationships? How how, am, how it, does my conceptual framework allow the growth and the expansion, the widening and deepening of the sense and the concept of what hu- my human relationships are? Or again, or is that my just kind of putting it into some uh, you know modernist secular box or, or whatever it is, or Marxist box or you know whatever. Death. Can can the whole, uh, you know, again, can the conceptual framework support opening the relationship with death? And so, how how often the conversation about death and relationship with it seems so sort of um, flatly polarized. After death, what will happen after death? Does it, and is there anything after death? And it, and it revolves around this re- rebirth, or heaven, or hell, or this state, or dissolving into oneness, or um, whatever. What are you now? Never mind what you will be, or what will happen. What is happening now? If I see that flatly, if I'm limited in what I actually sense and see happening now, if my soul's looking and sensing of this existence now is limited, what is this? What is even this now? What is time? All of that, when that gets limited, then it just becomes after death, after death. What Will, will it be just extinction? Or it is extinction? No, it's not. Or... There is, re- you know, this. It, it's a, it's a flat, polarized, um, k- kind of naive and unhelpful argument. And friends, mother is dying. She, she said, and friend, he said, you know, she doesn't believe in something better than what she has on earth. As if that's the only way of looking at it. What do you have on earth? How is time woven into all this? 
And is there a way of, um, you know, some people respond to death, oh, well, who dies? No one dies because there's no self. Um, or it's just a process that then disbands or whatever, there was no self, so death is okay. Or you just kind of dissolve into the universal being or the universal Brahman or whatever it is, or dissolve into God or <clears throat> whatever. Is there, uh, you know, all that? Or, or someone says, no, it's just, a, it's just a, all that's rubbish, it's just a tragedy. It's just an actual tragedy. Here was this wonderful human being, and now they're just gone, and there's nothing but un, unremitting sort of loss about death. Is there a way, are there ways of relating death that include all, all, all those possibilities, but add the whole dimension of the self? So the self is not either just dismissed, no one dies. Who dies? No one dies. Um, because there is no one, because there's no self, just a simplistic answer, or the self just gets dissolved back into sort of universal, amorphous, un, uh, unparticularized uh, being. Or is there a relationship with death, not bound by time, not bound by any idea about something lasting or what will happen later or anything like that in time after death, that actually still has a place for the self, a soul place for the self. So all of this, our conceptual framework has to be able to open up, for me, has to be able to open up and support quite a lot more than is often the case in relation to all these aspects of our existence. And of course, in relation to the earth and the environment, how desperately, desperately we are in, in, in need of a new uh, relationship, a new conception, a new perception, a new cosmology, really. Something that can offer, uh, uh, you know, a support, real respect, real openness. In, re- in regard to the earth, the environment, the cosmos, but also the senses. You know, again, how are we seeing the senses? How are we conceiving of the senses? And again, some interpretations of, of Buddha Dharma, it's as if, as, you know, the senses are, can be these sort of basic instruments that reveal bare attention. Other versions of Dharma have, you know, the senses kind of like, effectively, what you're trying to get rid of, ultimately, <clears throat> in some kind of transcendent dissolution. But the earth, the environment, the cosmos, the senses, the beauty, or beauty, beauties, can our conceptual framework open up the possibilities for beauty, for discovering and creating beauty? How does our notion of the Dharma support or inhibit that? And our conceptual framework also needs, of course, to, to do all this, account for, make sense of, give place, purpose, connect um, different aspects. Um, our Dharma practices, you know, how does all that connect? The ones that are we, we've maybe learned and, and, and new ones that we can discover for ourselves and how do they all fit together? And psychology. You know, again, it's a sense of like what what you know, what's taken as truth in psychology, or the psychology of, of a person or a child development, like what's, you know, the whole notion of, uh, or rather the whole possibilities of psychology. Because that too must expand if the eros-psychologos dynamic expands. Psychology, logos, the logos needs to expand. And, you know, said many times before, the whole sense of sacredness, and again, the range of that, and this whole notion of divinity, and what might that mean, or what can that mean, or how can that open up and become something that's supported and fertile. And if we talk about divinity again, how does the conceptual framework relate to and conceive of divinity? uh, the whole relationship of, say, the spectrum of fabrication with the fact, um, you know, tied in with that, that our perception can seem more or less substantial uh, with, with the refinement and, and moving up and down of that spectrum of fabrication? And do we just associate that with sort of less substantial, more refined, 
more ethereal is somehow more divine. Is that how we relate them? Or is there some other way that actually gives as much divinity to both ends of that spectrum? Are there other ways of conceiving that support a kind of uh, non-hierarchicalized uh, notion of divinity, of the, of the, of the range, of the spectrum of, of what divinity can be and how we can sense it? So the notion of dimensionality, I've said, is related to divinity. And and somehow, what's the conceptual framework in relation to the sense of dimensionality? We we discover in our experience as we we pay attention, as we experiment. There's always more dimensionality. Maybe that's tied in with the whole sense of divinity. There's always more. The unfathomability of divinity. But in always more, it's not necessarily that the more is closer to divinity. Just because it's more and I haven't fathomed it yet. So there's a lot here that a conceptual framework needs to kind of say, take account for, account for, include, not ignore, make sense of, give place and purpose to, and kind of stitch together in a supportive framework. All that, for me, I would say. And these, for me, again, maybe you agree, maybe you don't, but these are important things. These things matter to us. They matter uh, deeply. They make a big difference. The the conceptual framework uh, and the concepts and the uh, beliefs about and assumptions about all this stuff. Perceptions of all this stuff. Now another th- aspect of all this that's sort of, for me a requirement is we need to acknowledge, as I've already pointed out, um, not just that um, concept and percept, conceptual framework and experience are mutual dependent originations. In other words, where there's concept, there is experience, and that concept is part of fabricating that experience, shaping, determining that experience, giving rise to that experience. And also, of course, that the concepts we have are formed by experiences. So there's more, um, at least some of them. That they are, they are. There's a mutual dependent origination there, <clears throat> to some extent. But in addition to that, not just that, but in addition to that, both idea, concept, logos, uh, conceptual framework, and experience um, are both both are situated. Uh, they are contextually conditioned, so that excuse me, um, history and society, ideas, logoi, conceptual frameworks, and experience, perceptions, appearances, whatever you want to call those three, history, society, ideas, and experience are mutually conditioning. Sometimes they're hardly separable. Uh, in other words, ideas emerge in history and are borrowed uh, from history. We, we inherit certain ideas from history. Ideas also shape history. Um, and both of those shape our experience. And of course, experiences emerge and they become ideas and, the, and, and, and shape history that way. There's mutual conditioning between all those three. So what that means in relationship to conceiving of a conceptual framework that's supportive to soul-making and eros and everything that we're talking about is that we can't claim, it it would be silly to claim a kind of ahistoricality. Like, we're now talking about some truth. This conceptual framework is a truth that's ahistorical. It's transcendent of all history. It's not situated in this culture, in this time, with this this historical influx of ideas and, 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 and all the rest of it. It's totally contextual. Okay, so we somehow need to admit that and actually give relevance and place to that. Yeah? And maybe even purpose to that. Hopefully I'll, something I'll come back to. <clears throat> so, for example, in the story that I related of the Yogi on retreat um, the other day and, and, and her need for the earth um, and, and the woods to um, touch and address and cherish, to cherish um, 
her particularities, her self, her particular self, her unique self. In other words, uh, in, in the way that we're speaking about, for her, it, what was needed there was her self, in its particularity, in its uniqueness, to be more fully included and involved in the imaginal constellation. So that the self, um, there was a balance there in, in, the, in the expanding soul-making dynamic of your psychologus, and also so that the, the self, uh, or that part of that, the self became an erotic image. Either for the self, or, or in this case for the object of the, of the image reciprocally. So her need for that, someone could say, but surely that's just a creation, a fabrication, uh, demanded now, uh, or, or kind of conditioned or even forced, by the rise of, of the modernist self, uh, which was a self, a sense of self, that didn't exist before. Um, in, in other words, go back far enough in history read whatever documents we have, get a sense, and, and it's like, it's hard to really, um, pr- you know, really believe that the sense of self that we so much take for granted now in, 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 in modernity, in the time of modernity in Western culture, is the same kind of sense of self of the people that the Buddha was talking to. You simply do not get the same sense of... Um, uh, complexity or difficulty in regard to certain psychological interiorities that we now have that we absolutely take for granted and we feel viscerally this is myself and this is important um, uh, or perhaps even in the Old Testament as well you know it's just uh, as well as the Pali Canon it's like this modern itself is, is uh, quite a few philosophers uh, have pointed out it, it's a creation, it's a construction it's not a rea- it's not a so to speak independently existing reality it's not to say some sense of self um, will always be there but but the actual sense of self and and the complex interior arise sort of psychological self um, in in this kind of that seems to exist in some kind of independent way, etc., that, that we feel so so normally nowadays, <coughs> um, is a creation of modernism, of Western modernism. And were it not for that creation, this person is pointing out, then there's no need for the creation of a perception of an imaginal, an imaginal perception of the earth being in love with me, this as, as felt as a modernist self. There's a double construction there. To which I would say, yes, absolutely, there's a double construction. There's a double construction there. Soul-making, eros psyche logos, creates as much as it discovers. So yes, fabrication, yes, construction. But that doesn't make it certainly less soul-making. So there's a whole soul-making process here that we could actually say includes history, includes the ideas that are bequeathed to us. So the modernist self is, is a, to a certain extent, it's a soul-making construction. Historically emergent, culturally contingent, all of that. It's a soul-making construction, and then, and then it, it, it demands, its logos begins to break and... and <clears throat> doesn't support enough eros, doesn't support enough soul-making, demands another construction. That whole historical movement could be regarded as soul-making. I'm going to come back to this. But yes, acknowledging that it's a creation, a construction, a fabrication, doesn't make it less soul-making. On the contrary. doesn't make it less divine either, in the way that I would be talking about divinity. And doesn't even make it less real. Because you would have to ask, compared to what? Show me something that is not fabricated. Show me something that's not fabricated. So it's it's fabricated, therefore it's not real. Compared to what? (coughs) Or, 
to stay a while with this point of um, the mutual conditioning of history, society, ideas, logos, conceptual framework, and experience, perception, appearance. <coughs> I wonder how many of you have had this experience that <coughs> um, I've had, and, and I, I don't think it's that uncommon. Uh, perhaps you're with a, uh, a relative or, or a loved one, uh, some someone who is uh, who you love deeply, and perhaps they're ill, uh, for example, and perhaps you massaged their feet or held their feet, <coughs> or somehow held s- something of their body. Perhaps they were dying. And somehow, in the holding and in the love and in the erotic love, and I don't just mean sexual love, you know, in the erotic love there, <coughs> this person's feet, this loved one's feet, became holy. Maybe even became somehow in the perception there, um, in the imaginal perception, they gained a dimensionality or dimensionalities of holiness. Maybe they even became Jesus's feet body, the feet of the Christ, perhaps the crucified Christ. And wrapped up in that kind of thing, there's something sacred about this person, this person I love, their particularity, their body, something sacred, and something sacred about Christ or Jesus or whatever, and something sacred um, kind of spreading from that to all bodies, and perhaps in cosmopoesis as well. So there's some degree of, of that movement happening. <coughs> um, now you could say, of course, if if it is, let's say that the um, the sense of of touching Jesus's feet there, how. Um, rich that is. Some people, this will not resonate with at all, but for a lot of people in our culture, and not just people uh, who have Christian backgrounds, or who were raised Christian, um, that image has such a richness and a poignancy and a beauty and a poetry to it. Um, So you could say, oh, Sure, but you're having that experience because you're just kind of recalling, um, uh, you know, a cultural icon that you've been fed or conditioned from the culture, from your background, from your family, whatever. Um, and we say, yeah, sure, 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 that's part of what's going on, yeah. We are fed that image, and it's worked its way into the collective psyche. It might actually be almost eroded now at this point in history, but still, <coughs> um, it's there. So, yeah, sure, acknowledge that. And, both now and even originally in the actual um, historic occurrence of Jesus' crucifixion and all that with the apostles and um, the 12 disciples who became the apostles, etc. So, both now, in this experience, and in the original, could it also be that both you, in this experience, and of, of your loved one's feet, and um, Mary, or whoever it was, um, Joseph of Arimathea and these people, um, were tapping in to um, an archetype that kind of pre-existed Jesus, if you like, um, uh, an archetype of the Christ and the martyred one and everything that's wrapped up in there about death and divinity and and, and, and an exceptionally um, soul-making, beautiful love. So there's a tapping into an archetype. We could say that kind of primordial archetype in Jungian sense. Sure. So that's a could be both. And it could be that um, in in the original um, uh, the original experience historically in the New Testament with you know, again Mary and then Paul coming with his kind of theology of the body of uh, Christ etc. Um, all that was exactly the movement of erotic love stimulating, fertilizing, opening, widening and deepening and 
giving dimension and divinity to um, what it came into contact with as the Eros-Psyche-Logos dynamic was stimulated and fertilized. In other words, there's this Eros to this person. Paul, I don't think, ever met Jesus. Um, but maybe it was Mary and Paul as this per- his person, Jesus' person, became image for Paul and there was an erotic connection there for Mary and for the others. The erotic connection to this person of Jesus um, fertilized and deepened and widened the soul-making and thus the perception of the body of, of Jesus and, and um, other bodies related to his and, and the self and the cosmos and all of that. And out of that, a theology was woven. I mean, via Paul and, and all that, St. Paul. And this theology somehow preserved Jesus' uniqueness, his uniqueness, and his person, and somehow connected flesh and divinity. And in some, in some theologies, you know, uh, spills over into a kind of cosmology of the cosmic Christ, etc. And, and, and the whole kind of divine nature of the universe. So in this third possibility, not we, we're not just tapping into an, a kind of pre-existing primordial archetype, but the, the eros-psyche-logos dynamic, as it expands, is actually creating an archetype. Creating a cosmopoesis, creating a theology. Maybe that was what was going on um, both um, uh, historically, at the time of Jesus, and also uh, now. The Eurosychologus is, it, it will tend to divinize. And of course, what happened back then, 2,000 years ago, was historically conditioned, the kind of logos that came out of that. You can also, of course, trace it to the Old Testament and other other uh, you know ideas that were around, and Greek ideas. And um, you, But you can't escape uh, cosmology. And partly because you can't escape from history and society. So cosmology, you know, that was historically um, around back then, and the, the kind of messianism and Judaism and, and all that, <coughs> um, of course that informed. But there was also something else happening uh, in, in, you could say, the Eurocyclics, Logos dynamic was doing what it does and how it will transubstantiate things. We touched on in the last retreat. The idea that you can get away from any kind of cosmology that's in the present culture and get away from history and society. I'm going to come back to this. That that is highly questionable. Or again, as a third example, you know the idea, the conceptual frame, or the logos of, of a cosmic or divine eros. That idea that we've touched on, you know, it will seed, it will feed and support. Again, think of that orchard um, image of, of the tree. Um, it will seed and support um, the actual sense, the perception, the experience, the image of. Of that, of a cosmic and divine eros, the idea supports, seeds, and supports the, the experience intrapsychically with intrapsychic image, and then inevitably with the perception of the world. If I don't get in the way of that, and the, the reverse, this this idea um, of a cosmic or divine eros that somehow I'm mirroring or it's permeating the cosmos and all, all these different ideas. Those ideas, that imaginal perce- that um, image, if you like, or that mythos, will emerge from <clears throat> and be seeded, up, seeded by um, both, I, I would say historically is my guess, historically, but certainly now. You can see it um, also in practice, how something opens an experience, and then a little while later you read something and discover that someone had this idea that corresponds to your appear, your experience. Someone had it, you know, a long time ago. Both historically and now, the idea, or, or the mythos, emerges from... Um, experience and perception opening um, in in the mystical experience and in in the imaginal perception and in the cosmopoesis that comes from that.
It's the EP there, the uh, Eros Psyche Logos dynamic is operating. Everything is becoming, um, is getting gaining dimension and thus divinized. The divinity comes with the dimensionality. So eventually, as, as I've said before, even the Eros gets given dimensionality and divinized and expanded. There's a sense, there's an actual, I'm not even thinking it first, but just from letting, following the mystical and imaginal perceptions, letting, uh, not getting in the way, eventually Eros appears divine. And then that gives me the idea, oh, this is God's Eros. I'm participating in it, I'm mirroring it. This Eros that I have, this love that I have, echoes, mirrors, has roots in, whatever. <coughs> so, <coughs> we acknowledge, or rather any conceptual framework that I would like to be involved with or that I would um, could, could feel I could get behind needs to acknowledge that it's not some kind of ultimate truth. It's not depicting um, uh, uh, some like way things really are in some independent way, nor is it some ultimately true kind of grand theory, uh, conceptual framework of everything that's completely ahistorical. Yeah, so um, it needs to acknowledge all that. It's not ultimate truth, and it's not completely ahistorical. Uh, but at the same time, it needs to recognize, as I said before, there's always a way of looking, and included in the way of looking is is uh, the conceptual frame, a conceptual framework, a logos is operating always when there's experience, and that way of looking and that conceptual framework will um, give rise to experience, shape, determine, and actually give rise to experience. And, of course, the experience, uh, experiences we have shape and inform the uh, conceptual framework and the ways of looking. But it's not possible to uh, be without a conceptual framework or a way of looking. And if you don't know that, it's like, find that out. Find that out. Know that that's true. So, somehow we need to recognize that, is that needs to be included, and we need, with all this, all these kind of saying, we need to, all this, somehow we need, I would say, um, a conceptual frame, we need something that supports soul-making. And we need, uh, related to that, I'm going to run through a list and then, and then go back through them kind of more slowly. We need a conceptual framework that supports soul-making. We need... Um, a, a logos, a uh, conceptual framework that supports, I would say, the fertility and widening of our uh, experience and uh, understanding. We need to make sure that we, this is a third aspect now related, um, so fertility and widening, and related to that, we need to make sure that we're not engaging in um, epistemicide. I only learned that word the other day, but I was thinking along similar lines. I'll come back to this. Epistemicide. The killing, uh, the erasure, or the dis, uh, dismissal of ways of knowing. <clears throat> um, that we're not, fourthly, um, reducing uh, to some kind of dogma that there's just one way of looking that's valid. And there's... That way of looking reveals the true reality of things. Uh, and often that is what happens in secular modernity. Um, th there's a kind of, actually, a monotheism, a secular modernist monotheism of, in terms of ontology, what is real, what's not real, epistemology, what are the valid uh, ways of knowing and what are the not valid uh, ways of knowing, and cosmology, what kind of world we live in, what is the nature of the world we live in. And so shrinking that down uh, to, there's just one way of looking, you can call it mindfulness or science or whatever you want to call it, and um, and that reveals the, the reality of things. is actually a kind of uh, monotheism, whether it's religious or secular or whatever, it goes with modernism. Actually, I'll come back to this. Fifthly, 
uh, we need to, as I've already touched on, somehow incorporate this conceptual framework. Newswell needs to incorporate dependent origination, ways of looking at princi- principally the emptiness of things. Um, and it's actually related to what I said before, but um, a six perhaps is, is some conceptual framework that actually opens um, uh, the ways of knowing, uh, embodied ways of knowing, without a prescribed limit. So can, how, how, go back to what I said before, this is a variation of what I said before, but how fertile is it? Am I putting a limit and are there ways of knowing that are not just um, mental, rational, disembodied? Can we, uh, can the conceptual framework, as I said, include um, the idea that the conceptual framework breaks, and that the breaking of the vessels is is in some way included in the very conceptual framework, in the larger conceptual framework? And also what I said uh, much earlier in, in the retreat, that w- acknowledge and live with and, and I- integrate the idea that we can never fully understand Eros. Either because we say it's divine and unfathomable, or because of the Eros psychologos dynamic expanding always the, the nature of Eros itself, the perception, the concept of Eros itself. Somehow all of those need to get integrated into our conceptual framework.